There are two prologues in this episode. One is mine, the other belongs to my walking companion, Jade Angelese Fitton. I was last here, the North Devon beach of Croyd, when I was seven and staying with my grandparents. I remember trying to outrun the sandy slopes of Braunton burrows before the steep incline tipped me over, the sharp points of the dune grass leaving puncture marks on my legs. Sitting in the brisk Atlantic breeze, shrouded in what we called towels then, thin cardboard scraps of fabric that scraped wet skin like coarse sandpaper. And we ate kunzel cakes, hexagonal, square and oval-shaped cups filled with pink, yellow and beige cream. Different geometries, same soapy taste. Jade Angelis Fitton remembers this beach for different reasons. Brought up in Devon and fiercely attached to it still, there was something here that was a reassuring constant in her life. The remote island of Lundy, ten miles out to sea. As a child, she determined that one day she would live there, although it turned out to be for different reasons than she had supposed. As we walk from Croyd Beach along the cliff path to Baggy Point, Lundy is always there, staring back at us. When I was living here and would look at it, I'd call it the disappearing island because, I mean, a good 50% of the time it will be covered in a sort of haze of sea mist. But we can just make out, make out its outline there. Now that I've lived there, I get such a sense of longing to just be able to teleport myself back. I miss it. But I, it's a reassuring constant on the horizon, always. It fixes my attention more than celestial objects like the moon or the sun. It's a focal point for me. Jade's powerful new book, Hermit, a memoir of finding freedom in a wild place, is part autopsy on a former life and part panegyric to nature. Subtly and through the power of a hermit's retreat, autopsy morphs into cure. Ironically, Jade first moved to an isolated barn in Devon, enthralled to the most toxic of relationships, but it was only when her partner abandoned her there that she really began to live as a hermit, cleaning holiday cottages for a living, walking the cliffs to Baggy Point every day, and avoiding everyone. Part of her book charts the lives of other hermits, the hikikomori, or those who pull inwards in contemporary Japan the 4th century Egyptian saint Mary of Egypt, and Christopher Knight, who camped in the woods of Maine between 1986 and 2013, during which time he claimed to have exchanged just one word with one other human being, hi. Jade barely said more than that herself. Jane Goodall, the primatologist, talks about this, about how after a week of being on her own, she felt like she became a part of the world around her in a way that you just can't ever when you're with other people. You just sort of... And actually, um, Mike Finkel writes about it with the main hermit, Christopher Knight, alone. And when you let your guard down um, and you don't have to sort of perform in any way, you don't even really have to be human, you sort of... There's, there's a unity that you begin to feel, and, you know, you can get a bit sentimental about it and you know I, I actually think sentiment gets a bit of a bad rap but not in a romantic way in a very primal way maybe um, but at the same time the important distinction is always that 
to be alone and not be lonely. It has to be of your own volition. Yeah, it has to be your, your, you have to have made that decision to be alone, feel washed up on an island or left there. Um, it's, it's sort of the difference of whether you've escaped a certain situation or you've been left and you're marooned and you're abandoned. At every step of my journey, it was my choice to, to stay on my own. And I think I just felt very out of place for a long time. I'd, well, my whole life, really. I just struggled to fit in. And I'd always wanted to fit in, but just never really managed to. Um, and I, I tend to make connections with individuals rather than, I'm not very good in big groups. Just being on my own, I just, I didn't have to, I didn't fit in, but that was fine because there was nothing to fit in with. You know, I was, I was ignored. <laughs> the, the land, you know, the land, the world around me didn't care that I was on my own or that I was even here. I was just sort of, I was just here and that was it. It's strange reading the book that at the beginning you're so anxious to sustain the extraordinarily toxic relationship that you're in that actually you comply with a whole set of instructions to somehow keep it going. And it's quite a revelation as the book goes on that you realise that in fact it's the opposite of what you want, that craving to be with someone turns into an understanding and realisation that if necessary you don't want to be with anybody at all. Yes, definitely. A lot of the reason I stuck it out in that relationship, A, I'm stubborn and I I don't like to fail at things I, I I'm someone who likes to prove themselves and I've always had the belief that if you know you put your mind to something you can make it work sometimes it turns out you can't um, but also you know I went I was my parents sent me to this private school in uh, secondary school that they couldn't afford we turned out and clapped out old bangers that I would ask my mum to, to park at the back of the school so my friends were there like posh cars wouldn't see it. I just didn't fit in and I was always, you know, always trying to, to fit in and to please people and to sort of prove, prove myself as, as worthy of being in other people's company. I think that, that sort of sense of not being worthy that stayed with me certainly into my 20s and I think that was something that was very easy to manipulate and you know to uh, to keep me never being worthy of being with someone else meant that I was always always trying to please them and you know do whatever I possibly could to and that I that is my the best explanation that I have of staying staying in that situation for so long I just had no self-belief, no self-respect, and just a deep, deep sense of unworthiness that was taken advantage of. That changed, if not immediately, then very soon after I was left on my own in this barn on Exmoor. I just could not believe how nice and gentle a nice little boring life could be. It was just such a novelty to me. It's dusty now, from the warmth of an Indian summer, and when I pass other people, I always try to walk on the side of the path furthest from the sea. We all do, watching the dust from under our feet float out over it. 
If I haven't spoken to anyone for days, weeks, I will speak to someone here. If only to say, hello, morning, yes, lovely day, isn't it? A perfect amount of human interaction. I've never heard anyone shouting up here. Everyone seems to be pleased to be here, regardless of whatever else is going on in their lives. Walking up and down in summer and winter, in spring and autumn, watching the path and the sea change with the seasons, this barrierless thread of sandstone between me and the rocks and the sea. This is my version of living with unadulterated intensity, being here on the edge of the world. The path here can shrink to between two and three feet wide, and just before Baggy Point, it winds in tight to the headland, exposing a wide gully of nothing below. This bend is where the path is at its narrowest, its most lethal. It is a miracle people don't fall from it on a daily basis. There have been times when it's been windy and I've worried I might. When I've taken a breath and held it to look down below and seen nothing but black rock and white foam crashing against each other, clapping. A gust from the north hits my back and pushes me forwards and a little to the right, a little closer towards my maker. It whistles in my ear. But I trust each foot I put down and must not put it down until I trust where it will land. And every time the land supports me, every time I make it past the bend to walk down to the beach again, to do this all over again, it makes me smile a little. Writing is how I connect to the experience of being here. It's how I express my gratitude for being here. And perhaps it's recompense for the lack of gratitude I express for so long. Having once wanted my life to be over, now one life does not seem like enough. I am so greedy for the years these days that when I hear of someone's death, I'll ask, how old were they? They were 84, too young. Before she found this new appetite for life, Jade found herself courted, wooed by silence, and she admits that even now it tries to tempt her back. She supposes that if silence were an object, it would be a window, a space for illumination, a means of an escape, an opening up, not a closing down. So much of the subtext of Jade's book is about money or the lack of it the holding down of precarious cleaning jobs, the fear of not making the rent, the worry about being homeless. But having returned to Devon, and first being abandoned in the barn, then moving to a tiny cottage in Croyd, and then to the island of Lundy, she says she had an epiphany. Home wasn't a building. Home is a place. I would feel very rootless without having had that realisation. I think I don't need to have a have a building here I just have to come back here and know that this is my home what was it about the coming back because you came back from this deeply traumatic mm. set of circumstances which you described vividly in the book you also described the extent to which you were almost attacking yourself and you kept yeah. punching yourself in the head somehow to sort of it, it's interesting it, it seemed almost a form of punishment but also a form of, sort of trying to make yourself concentrate on getting through the catastrophe that that relationship was. You're sort of punching yourself into extra focus and extra concentration. But what was it that about coming back here, then being abandoned in the barn? The reader at that point is very relieved that you've been abandoned yeah. in that barn. Aren't we all? <laughs> that somehow 
released your creative imagination because it's then that you you have some business cards and you scribble out the word that was on the business cards and you just scroll in writer and you become one so what is it about this landscape the coming back to the landscape that somehow release that creative mind it was in part what was happening within the walls of the house that you know i wasn't constantly being told that you know what i was doing was wrong or bad or you know that i shouldn't be doing it because you know writing doesn't earn you much money and which is a terrible thing and to be an artist you sort of had to you had to have a trust fund or something and you hear it a lot even from well-meaning people but you know I was perfectly willing to make sacrifices to make it happen so I think there was definitely that that I wasn't being constantly judged and you know the the my actions weren't being prematurely sort of hampered by other people's doubts I've sort of just I gave myself this period of time and I was prepared to do it for however long it took to, to make things happen and to do what I felt I, I was good at and I'd, I'd wanted to do it for a long time. I'd been working as a producer and had had a couple of uh, shots at writing and had had a few things published and I felt like I, was, I had enough of what it took to make it work. There was also something about just having a complete expanse out of the window of nothing except for maybe I could see one or two other houses dotted along the country road that just, that there were no confines. There were no confines from coming from within the walls and there were no confines outside, it felt like. And I was free, for want of a better word. I had... I found the landscape freeing in every in every possible sense. There are some people who don't don't like it when you sort of unpeople the landscape, but sometimes the landscape is unpeopled anyway. The natural world is not judging you ever. Um, it doesn't it doesn't care if my poem is sentimental and ridiculous. It it's just it just is. What do you mean by people who have a problem with unpeopling the landscape? There is sort of this notion that describing empty landscapes, you are you are unpeopling it from the from the from those who work the land or from the people who might live there. But the reality is, there are always pockets of land where <laughs> there aren't many people about, and sometimes you actually just don't see people. And you know, of course, a part of that was the fact that I didn't want to, so I didn't make any effort to go out. Um, to go out knocking on people's doors and introducing myself. And to be quite honest, people who live in more remote places, they're, they're, they're there for a reason, usually. They don't really want you knocking on their door, introducing yourself and saying, hello, I've moved to the barn down the road, you know. The walk we're doing from Croyd to Baggy Point is swirling with life. Cormorants, storm petrels, shags and gulls. There's thrift, sea stock, bird's foot trefoil, gorse, sea campion and a memento mori, a vast bone covered in yellow lichen, the remains of a whale that washed up on the shore in 1915. But I just think it's the most absolutely incredible thing. I often dream about and have had a dream about a whale emerging from the water between Lundy and Croyd. I just love that it actually happened. I 
and it was here. I mean, I know it's sad that it was dead, but, you know, better than nothing, I think. Well, the, the way things happen to you, there probably will be a whale one day. Remember that time you wanted a sign that what you were doing, living on Lundy, was a good idea? And you wished for a shooting star, which took, what, 10 seconds to appear? And yeah. there it was. Yeah, and I disbelieved it. I, I sort of, I laughed at it. I was like, oh, don't be a ridiculous shooting star. And then another one appeared in the sky moments later and I was like okay I'm listening I'm paying attention I love the fact that it came mm. back a second time because it could tell you were going yeah right. yeah exactly it was saying, just for goodness sake listen to me you're on the right path yeah that was that was all I wanted was just just a sign that I was on the right path and I would have taken it from anything but a shooting star was was pretty it was pretty marvelous <laughs> yeah a whale would be better though a whale would yeah a whale would be better actually <laughs> one day those shooting stars were the proof, if she needed it, that moving to Lundy was the right thing to do. This is at the stage in her life when she describes herself as a recovering hermit, because this time she's moving to an extraordinarily isolated place, 10 miles out to sea, but with her new supportive husband, although he, not surprisingly, is nervous about the plan at first. No one's allowed to rent long-term from the Landmark Trust, who own the properties on Lundy. But the church, strapped for cash because of the pandemic, offers them the vestry to rent. The vestry has one single bed, a single ring hot plate, and a chilly porch for a fridge. What finally turned the church's head, as Jade puts it, was that Jade offered her services as a cleaner. So she finds herself finally living in the place that she'd been looking at her whole life, looking back at the mainland. Reverse of fortunes, reverse of view but still craving silence. You do become closer to something that's slightly intangible and almost impossible to describe, but it's almost like there's a spark to the silence. There's something, there's something imperceptible there. Something combustible. Exactly. So why is it then that women hermits are so derided by comparison with male hermits. So the idea of the man striding out into the wilderness very much associated with the idea of the, the lone enraptured male. Yes. But women who do it are deemed to have somehow made mistakes in life or to be despised or have failed or have been cast out. That's historically been the association, hasn't yeah. it? Absolutely. And I mean, it starts often with the, the initial the initial sort of seismic event in both sexes' lives, which is, in terms of male hermit, it's usually deemed as a sort of spiritual awakening and he, he, he sees everything that is wrong with society and he goes out in the pursuit of wisdom and to try and understand how to correct the flaws of society. Whereas with a woman, it's sort of typically that she's had a breakdown that's often induced by sinning, often in a carnal way, um, and so she's she's cast off by society and she's shunned and off she must go into a into a cell or into the desert and you know through her solitude she will be punished but also she will be somehow purified by that experience of, of, of being alone and you know begging for penance you know from from the world that has that has abandoned her I write about Mary of Egypt all of this stuff is through historically is retold by men. Um, so women are never in control of their narrative. Um, 
they, they don't ever get to say why they left society and the reasons that, you know, anchoresses outnumbered men. I think it was three to one. And of course, some of them all have been forced into that life. But I think a lot of women probably just wanted to just have a, have a quiet life, actually. It was a, it was a, it was a difficult life. And as you say, these are the male narratives. But interestingly about the women hermits that you chart, are never allowed back. Mm -hmm. Having been dispatched to the cave, or to the desert, Mm -hmm. or to the anchoress's cell, there they stay. Whereas male hermits have a kind of romantic gleam and gloss about them. And then they return from their period in isolation, bringing back wisdom. Exactly. There's something very redemptive about your book, because of course you choose to be a hermit back, but you come back with good tidings for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I find it very difficult actually to look at where I lived in Croyd now because I do feel a real sadness that that period of my life is over because it was just the, you know, one of the best times of my entire life. I I had a great time on my own. Um, But, you know, knowing what I know now and, you know, being having the life I have now there's of course I would never I wouldn't change that for an instant I do wish I'd begun that the the journey sooner I wish I'd come to the realization um that I was that I was happy in that state of being alone much much sooner but I think it has to be enough that it happened but it's interesting that you say the women never return and the men come back with the wisdom I had actually it had never been my intention to write about my life ever. So I knew my life was interesting, but I kind of, I assumed that it would be someone else who wrote the story when I was dead, basically. <laughs> so yeah, it, it very nearly wasn't me in control of my own narrative. But I do also think that unless you're forcibly parted from society and not allowed to come back, as obviously a lot of women were, I do feel that maybe something inside is sort of, there is something that's broken inside and there is something that is slightly irreparable if you're not willing to engage with humans at all, I think. Did you feel yourself moving in that direction? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But you you were conscious enough of that to sort of hoik yourself back, or was it just lucky circumstance that that hoiked you back, bumping into, against all the odds, the man who became your husband? Was that really the thing that kind of dragged you back into the world? Yeah, definitely. And if, if I had had all the money in the world, I would have stayed on my own, without a doubt. And I have no idea how that life would have ended up. I don't know... I, I don't know what, I think I would have, I would have been living in fear a bit always, although I was having a wonderful life, there was definitely a part of me that was scared to show myself and to reveal myself in any way, and I think that's part of why this book has been, you know, a, a phenomenal thing for me, and, and I feel incredibly lucky, but it has also been just the biggest challenge for me to sort of expose, I'm a very private person, um, <laughs> And I just sort of don't even talk about my problems to people who know me. So to sort of expose myself in, in that way um, has, been, has, been a, has been interesting. It's been a journey, I think we could say. It's a funny mixed blessing too, because you're very aware in the book that actually 
you are producing for yourself, almost against the odds and not by design, the most extraordinary material because of the privations, because of the pain, because of the, the sort of torment and the drama, at the same time as being quite cautious, quite anxious, that are you merely generating drama for the purposes of creative writing? How did you resolve that in your I mind? I stopped having drama in my life, um, so, and, then, and then things became more interesting on the page. You cannot, I don't think, well, I certainly could not be a good writer with everything that was going on in my life. There was, I just did not have the time or the energy or the headspace to do it. I had lived enough drama <laughs> by that point in my life for a, an entire lifetime. So I think that was being alone meant that I, I could start processing all of that drama and everything that had happened. And that was, you know, that, that was enough material for, for a lifetime. What I thought as I was reading it was how much I responded to the sort of tentative quality of the structure of it. So there isn't that sense of a final hurrah at the end. I've worked it all out and that's that. It's that wonderful circular sense that you start the book repeatedly saying eyes down, eyes down, eyes down. And that's because your partner berates you and hits you if he thinks that somehow you're catching another man's eye or that they're looking at you. And so you train yourself with this mantra to keep your eyes down at all times. But what evolves so fluidly at the end, and I don't even know how conscious you were when you're writing it at the very end, you start repeating that same mantra of eyes down, eyes down. But simply, as a reminder to yourself, when you're walking a wild path on your own, on Lundy, unless you keep your eyes down, you're going to trip up and fall over, as I did a little bit earlier on. And there's that wonderful synchronicity between the two repeated identical phrases, but in entirely different circumstances. Did that feel very conscious as a creative impulse? N not at all. It was, again, very instinctual. It just, it actually came to me when I was, when I was walking that path. And I had, the, funnily enough, the first, the first thing I wrote was the beginning. Um, and it remained the beginning. And I, I, I'd written that a, um, very, very recent, very recently when I was taking this walk and I was looking down and I was again you know my that mantra sort of came back and it just sort of hit me how much my life had transformed from the point where I'd been telling myself that in East London all the time every day just to keep my eyes down stay out of trouble you know don't make eye contact and this I was telling myself to keep my eyes down and to watch where I was going and not become so distracted by this huge beautiful worm moon that was rising uh, behind a sort of derelict castle um to keep my again to keep my eyes down for my own safety but for an entirely different and god much more fantastic and wonderful reason um and completely benign yes, comforting exactly. reason and, and self-protective reason exactly I mean, that was the other thing that, that emerged really in this beautiful tentative structure that the extent to which you're prepared to protect yourself rather than feel the need to defend yourself. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that is something that solitude and time alone gave me was the instinct to, to protect myself.
But that lure of silence, the way it keeps calling her back, still operates on Lundy, even though she's happy now. She realises that she has to have a little risk in her life, not the trauma of before, but a little gentle danger. So she temporarily leaves the vestry behind and hikes alone to Tibbets at the far end of the island. It's an old admiralty lookout built on a site called Gibbets, where islanders would hang pirates in metal cages as a warning to others. Tibbets has no water, no electricity, no phone signal, and she's a hermit again. And for the first few nights, she sleeps with a knife by her side. There is nothing like sleeping in a room with a fire, getting under the covers and having hot embers for company. Tonight, I don't even think of reaching for a knife. I have fought the fear and won. My trophy is this, enjoying the warmth while outside seeps into blackness and stars glitter cold and frozen in the sky. I have remembered how to be alone again, utterly alone. Out here, with no one around me, three quarters of the way up a tiny rock in the sea, it's more alone than I have ever been. I have no means of communicating with anyone on the island, and it's certainly more alone than I've ever felt. If I screamed, no one would hear me. If a pirate were to crawl through the annals of time and dock at the island, I would have to fight it out alone, as best I could. If one of the islanders went mad, which for some is more probable than others, and went on a violent rampage, I would have to fight it out alone. As I think of these things, after reading too many children's stories of pirates sleeping on the ground where their bodies were hung to rot, I am reminded that in order to enjoy being alone, there are fears the mind conjures that we must overcome, and that battle can be part of the fun. When you are alone like this, with no distractions, no electricity, no phone, no nothing, you have no option but to look your monsters dead in the eye. Look at them until they blink and ask yourself, can you find them beautiful? We're nearing the end of our climb to Baggy Point. The sea is a rare shade of turquoise and Lundy is breathing calmly on the horizon. When she was living the hermit's life, Jay did this walk every day, ate cheese and watercress sandwiches on the last scrap of rock before the Atlantic, walked back down again in silence. She has lunch in her pocket today, too, a thousand miles of ocean away from the pastel pink kunzel cakes of my childhood. Would you like a pasty? I would like a pasty. I've, so what do you got? So I've got, um, they're from the, the new beach hut that's over in the car park that didn't exist when I was here and they do the most incredible Sri Lankan curries and also sacrilicious <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn curry onion bhaji pasties um, they also do traditional cheese and onion and you know traditional pasties but I favour the Carolyn curry um, oh they sound great it's and nothing I, like a walk with a picnic or a walk with something. No, not a picnic, because that implies something that's a bit sort of posh or a bit sort of manufactured to yeah. look dainty. But just something stuck in your pocket. Exactly. I used really to, yeah. important. I, I, like I said, I would always come up here with a sandwich every time. That was sort of my reward. And, it, you know, it felt like you'd earned your, you, you'd earned your sarnie 
if, if you'd walked somewhere to get it, I think. So we've earned these pasties. We have earned these we've, pasties. We've risked life and limb. My mum always used to go, when we used to walk together, she had a, a coat with the biggest pockets you've ever seen. I think it's because the lining had gone in the coat. And so the pocket just became the entire lining of the coat. But it meant that she could stuff so many sandwiches and apples and then a, a flask of tomato soup and a flask of tea, all in what looked like a small pocket, but it was just sort of clanking all the way back around the edge of the hem. Yeah. Um, and it's crucial. You can't have a walk without snacks. No, I'm... My husband's got an old poach, a barber with poacher's pockets, and that's great for wild garlic season. <laughs> just go out and just stuff as much. You come back absolutely stinking, but totally worth it. <laughs> Look at it. Amazing. And they've even got some good branding as well. A little paper label stuck to the plastic. <laughs> good they are honestly amazing <laughs> what is past is prologue it sets the cause for everything and it's what made jade's home its life rural devon the not fitting in the sense of unworthiness the escape to seclusion the choice to walk back on stage but prologues blur into epilogues and epilogues can rewrite everything Lundy, which we're now looking directly across from, that was where the journey had to not end, but that was where it had to reach a sort of conclusion. It bubbled to the surface, and that was when I realised, OK, I have to do move heaven and earth to get to that place that I've been staring at my whole life. 